Welcome to Austin New Church Podcast. My name is Stephanie Swan, and I'm the children's pastor here. If this is your first time here, we're so happy that you've decided to join us. We are a progressive faith community dedicated to the pursuit of inclusion and social justice. Whether you're a beloved out-of-towner or just catching up, please enjoy this week's message. Good morning, y'all. Hi. Happy November. Yay. Aside from May, welcome to the busiest, wildest time of the year. Does anyone else feel that way? Yes. It's like, happy, hallow, thanks, Christmas giving. That's what I feel like saying to everyone, because it's like the suburbs of DFW in the end of October, all of the holidays just sort of run, run right into the other, and it's wild, especially if you have kids in school. So this last Monday on Halloween Eve, which is also my husband's birthday, with visions of jack-o'-lanterns and sugared-up kids running through my head, I woke up to a house full of sick kids, and I thought, that's about right. That's about right. They could not have picked a worse week for them to get sick. You think they could have planned it better? Because it was the week of um, costumes and class parties and candy and all the things, and then trying to write this sermon, of course. Which, by the way, have you seen some of these memes a haunted house, but it's the unseen mental load of motherhood. I think we could say parenthood too, but I'm a mother, so. And then this one, a haunted house, but make it the unrecognized invisible labor behind all the cute Halloween costumes, fun class parties, and magical activities. That's pretty much what my life is like. Oh my goodness. But I think the universe has a sense of humor because the other week, I was telling a friend, like I was seeing this mom snuggle their baby and thinking, oh, I just miss when my kids were little because my, my youngest is six. I miss that like snuggliness and the only time they ever want to cuddle is when they're sick. And what do you know? <laughs> they get sick, but after about hour four of like nonstop full body contact from my littlest one, I was think- rethinking what I said about missing when they were little. Um, So this sermon was brought to you by lots of interruptions, (laughs) lots of coffee, and lots of requests for tea and snacks, and mom, she's touching me, and mom, can you fix the Wi-Fi, and a sweet six-year-old attached literally to my torso, reading along with every word as I was typing it. It was so sweet, and also, hmm. Um, (laughs) So sometimes I wonder, it's so interesting to balance like being a parent and then studying and preparing for a sermon because it brings a lot of humanity I think to the text and sometimes I wonder how different would the gospels be if they were written by a parent like I don't think Matthew had kids because there is a suspicious lack of talk about snacks in the gospels I don't know if you've ever noticed that but that's what I was thinking about this week Uh, What a beautiful conversation we've had this fall as we've sort of walked with Jesus in the book of Matthew, flipping back and forth, him debating the religious leaders, and then him pulling his disciples aside to whisper these sort of mystical, enigmatic um, parables about a theoretical kingdom of heaven, which if you were going to paint a picture of the kingdom of heaven, I'm just curious, what would it look like? Maybe it would look like Have you seen that like cosmic, psychedelic AI generated art online? Like would it look like that, really trippy? Or would it look like the church heaven that we grew up with, clean and sterile, gleaming white and glistening gold with, of course, because it's the American church, white blonde cherubs floating around mansions? 
But that's not what Jesus painted for us. The word picture Jesus used was a picture of a vineyard and a picture of a wedding dinner. I mean, of all the word pictures to use, really? A muddy field full of weeds that need picking and bugs that are chomping down and work that needs doing, and then a loud and raucous wedding feast with drama and dancing and last-minute stress and mess and music and everyone getting too tipsy. It all seems so human for something so heavenly. Unless, as we've seen this fall, unless the kingdom that Jesus talks about is in our relationship to one another and to this earth. Unless it's not a place as much as it's a way, the way that we relate to God and to each other, the way that we love one another with mutuality and by leaning on one another like Dana and Stan are going to walk us through next week during coming home weekend. After all these weeks of walking with Jesus, do you see it? The kingdom of heaven is right here in our relationships to one another, I think that's what Jesus is saying it without actually saying it. And at first I wondered, why is Jesus talking about a kingdom of heaven during his last week alive, of all the things? But I think it makes sense because Jesus had entered Jerusalem during the week of Passover. You could cut the tension in that city with a knife because do you remember what Passover represents? It celebrates the liberation of a people oppressed by empire. When Moses led the people out of enslavement by the ancient Egyptian empire and now here they were again the same people oppressed by the rule of the Roman empire. Can you feel that ache. Can you feel their ancient pain seeping through the page? They wanted what we all long for, what we usually take for granted here in our privilege in the United States. They wanted safety and belonging and autonomy. It's what oppressed people always long for, to be free. And so when Jesus entered Jerusalem, I think he stood on that same Land, even then, layered with the ruin of conquest and soaked with the grief of generational trauma, and I think he could feel it. I think he could feel the ache for liberation, for a Messiah to lead this liberation. But you see, Jesus also saw past tribal lines. He wasn't going to advocate for a liberation for one people group at the expense of another. He wasn't going to stand up for the oppressed only so they could become a new oppressor. He spoke of liberation, yes, but not the kind they expected, not the kind that fights back with violence, not the kind that draws lines. Jesus spoke much more subversively than that. Jesus spoke, I think, like all the great mystics, of a movement toward love, a love that dissolves boundary, a love that runs under the fences and walls that we create. Jesus spoke of a middle way through a path of conflict, one that wasn't on the side of Rome or the rabbis, one that wasn't on the side of king or priest. It was on the side of all people, all things. You cannot fight violence with more violence You fight violence by sopping it up with your own brokenness. The de-escalation of violence, Jesus would say, has to start with you. 
That's how we build the kingdom of heaven. So this is the next to last passage in this series before we move into Advent. Like I said, hallow thanks Christmas giving. <laughs> One right into the other. Next week, Dana and Stan are going to speak on mutuality and what it means to lean on each other in community. But today, let's look at some of Jesus' last words on this earthy, heavenly kingdom. Matthew 23, verses 1 through 12. And Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Therefore, therefore do whatever they teach you and follow it, but do not do as they do, for they don't practice what they teach. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on the shoulders of others, but they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they, they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Okay, so phylacteries are those leather boxes you may have seen. They're filled with scripture, and Jewish people attach them to their heads and arms during morning prayer. And then these fringes are tzitzit. They're attached to the four corners of a tallit, which is a Jewish prayer shawl. So back to the text. They, they love to have the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in synagogues and to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to have people call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all students. And call no one your father on earth, for you have one father, the one in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah." The greatest among you will be your servant. All who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. May God enliven the reading of her word. Amen. Okay, so clearly Matthew has some problems with the Pharisaic sect of Judaism. We've talked about this. Right after this passage, Jesus, in Matthew's words, calls them blind guides, snakes, brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs. And this has always puzzled me because name-calling does not sound very Jesus-like, if you ask me. And that was explained to me as well. What they were doing was so horrible that it warranted Jesus' name-calling. I don't know. I think that there is great wisdom in the Gospels, but it's worth naming that there is also bias because it is written by people, and people have a bias, and this might be Matthew's bias leaking through the page. So maybe some context would be helpful. Because when Jesus walked the earth, Palestine was home to four main sects of Judaism, and they were all coping with Roman occupation very, very differently. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots. And Jason has talked about some of this. But basically, the Pharisees focused on rabbinical teachings, interpreting and following the mitzvah, uh, which is just the Hebrew word for teaching. This was their way to maintain Jewish identity under immense pressure to assimilate. They were trying to maintain a sense of ethnic identity, which is something to have compassion for. The Sadducees were most aligned with the Jewish priesthood because, remember, the priests and the rabbis, they're not the same group. To be a priest, you had to come from the line of Aaron. Um, and the Sadducees were also most aligned with the Roman Empire. They handled occupation, I think, by playing nice 
with the powerful, go along to get along. And then the Essenes were this mystical sort of ascetic sect that removed themselves from society outside of Jerusalem. The Zealots, well, their solution was to overthrow Rome in a violent political revolution. Which group do you think that some of Jesus' followers wanted him to fall into? I think probably the Zealots. They wanted a revolution. But you know, Jesus didn't like being put into a box like that. So anyway, after the Jewish revolt against Rome and then the destruction of the temple in 70 CE, the Pharisees were the only sect left. And Matthew, remember, was writing after this when the Pharisees were a singular voice speaking against this Jesus way. So that's why I think they play such a central role in the Gospels. So keep that in mind, because it's almost as if Matthew is using the Pharisees as a narrative device to move the story along. They're a foil to Jesus' protagonist. They're an antagonist to the plot. So when Matthew talks about these religious leaders, you can think of them more as a caricature representing any religious leader or really anyone who feels so unworthy of love that they try to fill themselves up with approval and attention from others, which is me, which is you, which is anyone. We all have the capacity to do that. And I imagine Jesus looking at those blind guides with such compassion, not contempt. He saw past the posturing and the primping and the preening into a broken, aching heart, a heart that longed for unconditional love, that longed for belonging and safety and connection, but was convinced the only path to it was by status and show. But you know, you can have compassion for someone and still hold them accountable for the impact that their actions have on other people, and that's what Jesus is doing. He understands their motivations, but that doesn't mean their actions are excusable or the harm they're causing isn't real because two things can be true at the same time. You can understand why someone is doing something and still say it's not okay. I love that about Jesus. So let's take a look at what Jesus does not criticize, because he criticizes a lot. But what he doesn't criticize about the Pharisees is their teaching. In Jesus' words, the teachings of the Torah, the mitzvah, is not the problem. Those are actually aligned with Jesus' highest value of love, and he reinforces it by saying, you can sum it all up in love God, love others, love yourself. It's one particular way to embody love in the world, not the only way, not a perfect way, but it's a particular way. What he does criticize, however, is the religious leaders' actions, the fact that they don't practice what they preach. This is a hard sermon to preach on <laughs> because of that. I'm like, oh my goodness, because they're not living love. He points out their hypocrisy, a lack of alignment between what they say, they value, and how they actually live. And he doesn't pull any punches when it comes to this. But aside from all the vitriol at the beginning of this passage, it's actually the end of this passage that contains one of the most beautiful principles in all of the Gospels. Jesus says, the greatest among you will be your servant, all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. So I don't know about you, but I grew up only hearing the first part. Don't exalt yourself. 
Don't be arrogant, don't be haughty, prideful, showy. Don't think too highly of yourself or else God is gonna come along and strike you down with this humiliation hammer. But what I failed to hear is the beautiful balance of Jesus' words. Jesus is equalizing power structures. He's creating a vision of an egalitarian society, a way to overturn systems that oppress. What is high must become low, and what is low must become high. In the kingdom of heaven, those who have great power release it, and those who have less power claim it. The powerful step aside and the less powerful take up more space. It's a gorgeous rebalancing. And did you know that this flipping of power structures, this subversion, this mutuality, this equality that leads to leaning on one another, this call to living who you are fully and truly inside and outside, those ideas are what we now call feminism. It's really just an ideology of liberation. And Jesus was preaching it way back when. The way to liberation, Jesus would say, is to release the sin of hypocrisy. And if sin is taking what is already yours, then I think the sin of hypocrisy is taking a power that you already have. You already have power. You don't need to take more. You have power over yourself. It's the only person you can really control anyway. But the Pharisees tried to control others by projecting a false image of themselves into the world. They wore a mask. They played a part in order to influence other people and gain approval and respect. But Jesus says, don't take what isn't yours. Don't claim someone else's power over themselves. That isn't yours to claim. And on the flip side, take up what is yours. You do have control over you. You have agency and you have power over your own journey to wholeness. So there's an idea that I'm learning about from a psychologist named Carl Rogers that our sense of self, how we view ourselves, can be divided into two sort of categories. We have this ideal self, which is the person that we want to be, and then we have a real self, which is sort of the person we actually are deep down. And we become free and fully alive when we can achieve consistency between those two selves. He called it congruence. Some people call it integration. I think Jesus would call it not being a hypocrite. It's just when our vision of this real self and this ideal self are very similar, when they overlap more and more, then the person we want to be is the person we actually are. It's actualization. When that happens, I think we have a greater sense of worth. We can live a healthy and productive life. And Rogers says that as persons are accepted and prized, they tend to develop a more caring attitude toward themselves. Parents help their kids achieve this by giving what he calls unconditional positive regard. There are no preconceived conditions for worth. You are worthy as you are. Full stop. There is no I love you in spite of. No, I love you because. No, you are worthy of love and therefore I love you. It's unconditional. But when you're raised in an environment of conditional positive regard, like probably most of us are, 
in which worth and love and belonging are attached to certain conditions, then we learn really, really fast that we have to match or achieve those conditions in order to receive the love that we yearn for. So we develop this ideal self based on other people's opinions, and we're forced to develop outside of what we're truly motivated by. This contributes to incongruence. It's this gap between who we really are and who we think we have to be in order to get what we need. So... Jason pointed this out to me last week, that Jesus spends so much time in the Gospels with these religious leaders, the same leaders that reject him, the same leaders he calls a hypocrite. Why? I think it's because his heart broke for them. They were not experiencing unconditional positive regard. In order to get what they needed, they put on a mask, and they got so good at putting on the mask that they forgot who they really were. Jesus is calling them into wholeness, calling them into becoming who they really always were, a wholehearted person meant to be free. But I sense this fear in the hypocrite that if they take off the mask, everyone will leave and they'll be alone. If they take off the mask, no one will love them because all they've known is that conditional love All they've known is a love based on the mask that they wear, and they're very good at getting connection with the mask on. And they're terrified of being abandoned if they take the mask off. But you have to risk loss, I think Jesus would say, in order to to gain real life. When you show up without a mask, there might be people who leave. It takes faith to risk that loss in any transformation. It takes faith to unfold when the only connection and love you've known was attached to a mask. And so I often think if Jesus were to come here, if he were standing in our space, what would he say about us? I think he'd say the same thing that he said to the Pharisees with compassion for the immense suffering that is caused by living a divided life. So let me read you my paraphrase. Then Jesus says to us, take off the mask. You don't have to play a part. All of you is worthy of love and belonging, even the parts you find repulsive, even the parts you're afraid to look at right in the eye. All of you deserves connection. And in this kingdom, the high become low and the low become high. We're all equal. In this kingdom, we're all set free by the same source of life. You don't need to lift up your teachers, your preachers, your priests, your rabbis, your pastors, because we all have one teacher, the Messiah, which is just another word for someone who liberates. Listen, Jesus says, the way of liberation is our instructor. God in all is our wise ancestor. And paying attention, presence, is our greatest teacher. Pray with me. Mother, Father God, you see us, all of us. The late night stress, the early morning coffee breath, 
the memories we stuff, the grief we dam up, the joy and the pain, the loss and the love, you see us and you say, all of you is worthy. All of you belongs. Not to change us, but to embrace us. This is what it means to be free, you say. You can take off the mask and you can start with me. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Austin New Church Podcast. To stay connected, follow us on our Facebook and Instagram pages and head over to austinnewchurch.com where you can get added to our mailing list. Our services are also live streamed on Facebook and YouTube on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. if you'd like to receive the full experience. We're so grateful for who you are and who you're becoming.